The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Barbara Waxman is our guest on HealthGig today. Barbara is a coach, life stage expert, gerontologist, speaker, and author. Barbara is passionate about building leaders' personal and professional skills so they can thrive while increasing their ability to manage complexity and maximize their effectiveness. Barbara, welcome to HealthGig. Thanks for having me. Trisha and I thought it would be great to begin with your origin story. Tell us a little bit about you and your background. I'm one of those people who has followed the threads of the tapestry of my life. And I started in the field of aging, unbeknownst to me at the time, when I was probably about seven years old. (laughs) (laughs) My father was a physician and he would take me with him to the Menorah Home and Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, when he would go and volunteer. And I was so little, but he figured out it's a safe place, it's a nursing home. And so I would wander the halls while he was seeing patients. And I still, when I think about it, and I tell this story quite often, I can imagine the blue lights and the white, white walls and the antiseptic smell. And I'd walk around the halls, peek in rooms, and people would invariably say, what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? Yes. And from a very young age, I started to realize that I could make people feel brighter and happier And of course, that's the secret sauce, right? The more we give, the more we get. And I always felt good. So I kept going back. And there began my interest and love for aging, for wisdom, and not like the rest of our culture, shunning people. In fact, being attracted to that. Uh, Fast forward in college, I worked at the Menorah Home and Hospital as a recreational therapist every summer. I thought I was going to be a nursing home administrator. In college, did a perceptions of the elderly thesis, and that was in the 1980s. And by the way, at that time, this field of gerontology was in its infancy. So I was interested in it, but I was sort of interested in a field that hadn't yet developed. So the only course at the university I went to, Colgate University in upstate New York, was called The Two Career Couple. That was the only thing in the 1980s that came close to adult development. So I went to graduate school and became a specialist in all things around what we then called aging, what we now call longevity, because of course, aging isn't aspirational. So that's how I originally got into the field. And I use that story to help people understand that oftentimes we need to go back. We need to dig deep to the wisdom that we have from the story of our own life to find those threads, those pieces and pick them up again and weave them into our life today. Because when people can't necessarily find their sense of what we call purpose, and I think we have a national obsession about purpose and get stuck on it, when they go back to some of those 
childhood interests or dreams, there's a lot there to work with. When you said that we have a national issue with being stuck on what is our purpose, do you want to talk a bit about that? Because actually, Dora and I were just talking about that as well. I actually do call it an obsession with purpose. We meet people and two things generally happen. The first is, how busy are you? We call it, hi, how are you? But what is the American response? How busy are you, right? Yes. Oh, well, I'm doing this and that. And the other secondary issue that causes people so much pain is this, what are you all about? What's your purpose? People feel like, I'm no Mother Teresa. I don't know my purpose. So as a coach, I help break it down for people because actually purpose is made up of two essential aspects. One, I call little p purpose. Little p purpose are the breadcrumbs that lead you to your big P purpose. And it is so important for people to remember that. So examples of little P purpose are thinking of what's one thing I can do to make someone else's day a little bit brighter. Is it call a neighbor who I know is alone? Is it smile at someone in a store? We can talk about the epidemic of isolation, even when we're out and about with people. What are those small things? Working in my garden, small P purpose, brings me joy, growing things that I then give away to others. So what are those things that bring you joy? They can be really simple. And what are those things where you're doing small things? Random acts of kindness for others. Along the way, that takes the pressure off and leads you to a sense of big P purpose. So let me talk for just a moment about what is purpose. Purpose often changes over the course of our lives. I mentioned to Doro as we were starting this recording that right now my family has had a medical situation that's been really tough. So for the last week or a couple of weeks, my big P purpose has been to let everything else fall aside and focus on this health crisis that one of my family members is going through. At another time in my life, my daughter suffered from an autoimmune disease. I dropped work for two years to focus on her health and wellness and saving her body as we know it because we were talking about having to do some major surgery. So there are times in our life, it doesn't have to be health-related, caregiving, for example, in other ways, that changes our sense of purpose. Those show up and we don't consider them purpose because it's like, oh, well, that's just something I have to do. No, we always have agency. One of my favorite books, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor, who during the Holocaust in the camps recognized who were those people who survived. They weren't always the fittest, the strongest. They were those people who figured out a way to recognize humanity all the time and to do small things if it's sharing a breadcrumb to maintain the humanity in ourselves and see that spark in others. So big P purpose changes over time. And if we're not sure what it is, allow those little P purpose breadcrumbs to lead you there. You talk about something called middle essence as opposed to middle age. 
So can you explain what that is and is changing your purpose or finding your purpose is middle essence a good time to do that? A few years ago, I took a sabbatical. I called it repotting. I picked up my roots. I planted them in new soil so I could really be infused with the kind of environment to feed me with a new perspective. And in so doing, I looked at the metadata, the, all of the research as a gerontologist, combined that with, at the time, about 15 years of qualitative information from stories I'd been hearing from coaching clients who I refer to as midlife and better. And I recognized that the 30 years that we all talk about in the demographics, right? The 30 years that we've added to our life expectancy in just the last century, we tend to have some default thinking and think, oh, I'm old longer. But that is not how we experience those extra 30 years. We experience them in the middle of life. We're not older longer. We're in this vital phase for longer. And this vital phase has gotten a bad rap because no one has lived it before. This is the first generation to experience a second reckoning. Let me explain it. What other stage has hormones change, bodies morph, and a sense that I'm not young, but I'm not old. When we think about adolescence, which by the way, people think, oh, adolescence, it's a life stage. Well, adolescence was made up by a psychologist, Stanley Hall in the early 1900s, when he recognized all of these parameters. So in 2016, when I looked at this collective information and put myself in a space where I could gain perspective and creativity, I thought, we now live long enough that we go through adolescence, which is not a defined age. It's more of a stage, a reckoning, twice, sometimes more. So midlife is a reckoning time where we think, here's some of the questions that come up. Have I been living someone else's dream? Have I run the course of this work, this relationship, the habits and rituals that have owned my life? If I have another few decades to, by the way, match my health span to my lifespan, that's the goal. What do I need to change? So middle essence is a reframing and a vocabulary for this stage where we look at it's time to change. And by the way, it ties very much into this mistaken notion of a midlife crisis. So you're saying this idea that we've been living with, people go through midlife crisis, oh my gosh, we're getting older, is all just got to change this. And you talk about mindset being really important. So how do you do it? How do we undo all these <laughs> things that we've been taught, we've, we've even thought, we actually yes. kind of live out? First, it's, it's important to recognize, and I want to plant the seed that understanding facts and then looking at feelings, they're both equally important. And the facts are the midlife crisis is a myth. There is no research or data. Just like adolescence is a challenging time. And the moment I say the word, do you remember when you were an adolescent? What do you think of? You think of free, young, having fun. 
What else? Anything else? Sometimes a little bit awkward too. Adolescence is a little <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I wish I wish I had a Kimberly. Yeah, that awkward thing. Oh like my god! You know, and your bodies are changing, and yes, lots of things are happening that are happening, and you want to be your own person, but you can't really be your own person. Peer pressure, all that stuff. Peer pressure. Like all the memories of my own and then my children's are all kind of flooding back. <laughs> right? And you get this rush of overwhelm of feelings. It's both fun and freeing because when you're an adolescent, you can say, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm an adolescent. But when we do that as middle lessons, what happens? People say, you can't make a mistake. You got to yeah. be a grown up now. People make fun of people in middle age, like the guy who goes out and buys the sports car. Oh, he's going through a midlife crisis. Let me tell you where that comes from. And by the way, just like adolescents, people make fun of kids in adolescence. So we need to create a collective consciousness around what it means to be in midlife because 10,000 people a day just in the U.S. are turning 65. There are the next 10 years there are going to be more people who are 65 and older than people under 18. We own the economy, right? $35 trillion of the global economy are spent by people over 50. So this midlife crisis myth exists because it sells. Fear sells, right? How do we sell those red Corvettes? If you feel like you want to gain back the sexiness you had when you were younger, because this time our bodies are morphing, but not necessarily in the greatest ways. <laughs> buy a Harley, buy a Corvette. So that's kind of how this consumer branding has bought us all into this midlife crisis myth. It is a reckoning, no doubt about it. But through reckoning, through change, comes resilience and comes a new way of being. I often say that the crisis comes to those people for whom you change. So I have a client who recently made the decision to leave medicine, a field that she had been in for decades and trained for decades and was supporting her family. And she was ready to stop. There are a lot of physicians who are just burnt out. She wanted to do something very different and she wanted to go back to school and it required a move. And her family was saying, this is a midlife crisis. Are you kidding? You can't change in this way. This happens all the time. So the midlife crisis myth is often labeled by those people for whom they're counting on us to keep this sense of you're supposed to be a grown up, just flatline, keep on going along and don't take risks, don't experiment, don't fail. When the opposite is true, when we have all these decades to come, the reality is it is time for us to own our power, understand through our life experience that we're resilient. Try it out. If it doesn't work, you'll pick up the pieces. Let me tie that into a little bit of research because I was saying understanding the facts, understanding the feelings, super important. Those are some of the feelings. What are the facts? Are you familiar with the U-curve of happiness? You know? No, tell us about that a little bit, but okay. tell us. Yeah. So if you imagine a smiley face high on one side, so we're in our 20s, which is when the research started asking people to report their own sense of happiness. We're in our 20s. There's this future time perspective. Laura Karstensen of the Stanford Center on Longevity talks about time goes on forever. I have time to adolescence, time to make mistakes, time to fail, right? So all of that goes on. And people tend to report, this is a great time of life. I'm taking risks. I don't have to be too responsible. Everything's in front of me. And then what happens? We get into this hard slog of years, 
from about 30 to our late 40s, oftentimes we have families then and we're raising families. And when we ask people, these are fulfilling decades. Are they our happiest? It's tough, <laughs> right? Raising a family, being a caregiver, these, it's no joke. So they're fulfilling years, but our happiness tends to go down when we feel like there's a sticky commitment to the choices I've made. And now I've got to kind of put my head down and do them. Well, at around 48 years old, it reaches the bottom part of that smile. P.S. That's around when people start feeling this midlife crisis. But it's not a crisis when it's like adolescence, if we anticipate it. And they start feeling like, wait a minute, I've been living someone else's dream. Or wait a minute, I'm not going to live forever. And this future time perspective, anything that is not immediately available is more precious to us, right? Time becomes more precious and we start realizing actually things aren't so bad and I'm going to dare to make the changes that I want to see in my life. People tend to care less about what others think and so they make the changes and through our 80s, there is a higher self-reported sense of happiness in our lives. The midlife crisis is a myth. We do get happier, but it is a transitional time. So I want to encourage people to think about what if I anticipated middle-essence as a time where I'm supposed to stop and figure things out and say, what do I want the next decades of my life to be like? And that's where the, Trisha, where the, the mindset part also comes in. Also, I'm interested in what are some of the, you talk a lot about making changes. How do we, what are the tools? How can we make the changes? So I will start with mindset. We live between our ears. <laughs> we live True. in our minds. And there's a saying, if you think you can, or if you think you can't, you're right. Mindset is so important that it actually impacts our life expectancy. There's a researcher out of Yale, Becca Levy. And there are two important data points based on her research that I want to bring up. The first has to do with the fact that when people have a positive mindset about their aging, their longevity, they live on average seven and a half years longer. That's tremendous. Think about it. Just the starting point of having a positive mindset. But of course, when we have a mindset, it shifts our behaviors, which changes how we relate to other people, including taking care of ourselves. So there is a ripple effect but positive mindset changes the course of our life expectancy. She also more recently showed that people who have mild cognitive impairment, which by the way, one of our greatest fears is that we'll lose our memory. Well, people who already have some level of mild cognitive impairment, when they also are taught about positive mindset about aging, their results are significantly better than those who don't have that actively engaged mindset of positivity. It's remarkable. Mindset truly is a fact, not just a feeling. And the ways to cultivate your mindset, a tried and true exercise is before you get out of bed every morning, take one minute. It doesn't take much time and it changes your world. Think of three things that you're grateful for. Just that act, it could be, I'm grateful for the fact that I'm waking up with no pain in my body. Because by the time we're middle essence, whether it's through sports, through genetics, 
through all kinds of reasons, we often wake up and something hurts. It could be something like that, something you're looking forward to, gratefulness for your family. It doesn't matter how big or how small, three things and then three breaths. Three things you're grateful for, three breaths. Again, the whole thing might take a minute to two minutes. And that will change the way you go through and experience your day. Wow. And because I guess it's like we say, you're setting up the day that way, right? You've just said to your mind, because we're living in our mind, let's move here now. And then it just helps you throughout the day in that kind of organization. Is that what you're saying? What we choose to put our focus on is what we choose to see. You automatically shift yourself towards a different way of being, wobbing, I call it. How are you wobbing today? Um, (laughs) And it does. I mean, we've all woken up on those days when there truly is something really awful in our lives and you feel a heaviness, a burden, almost physically, right? And it changes your day. So I also want to say that this is a practice. For a lot of people, doing this feels awkward. It feels like, oh, this Barbara Waxman is in California. Well, I'm a New Yorker also, folks. So (laughs) I drive to results. And it is tried and true. It is practice. It takes time and effort. And invariably, people feel the results of entering the day with a focus on gratitude and connection. That would be one tool. Going back to my original question, are there other tools that help us make the changes? One of the things I really admire about your podcast has to do with its holistic approach to making both individuals and a planet a better, safer, more engaging, connected place. One of the ways to do that is to understand that lifestyle itself is medicine. Just yesterday, I'm an advisor, Stanford University has a lifestyle medicine program. And the advisors are these international experts doing research in all of the various pillars having to do with lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle medicine only recently became an accredited medical specialty on its own. Wow. That's really interesting. So, okay, keep going. Wow. So for years, the medical profession, especially Western medicine said, if it's broke, we'll fix it. Meaning, right? If there's something in your GI tract that's not working, we're going to throw medicine at it. Once you're sick, doesn't work, we'll take the plumbing out. We have all kinds of ways to do amazing things. And Western medicine is so important. And it's a model based on once it's broken, we'll fix it. Lifestyle medicine, we've now recognized in the field of longevity, lifestyle is medicine. So what fails when people say, I want to go on a diet. What fails is that people are saying, I'm going to cause some suffering to myself by making changes for a short period of time. And then I'll go back to wobbing, to my way of being that isn't a lifestyle based on the nutrition that I know I need. That's the way even our diet industry, and I use that because it's the tip of the iceberg that most people can relate to, it fails for people. So lifestyle as medicine is made up. There are seven pillars for Stanford, but I have five pillars because people can remember five. So let me tell you what they are. The first is rest and renewal, which is completely undervalued in our culture. 
getting enough rest. We feel like I'll sleep when I'm dead. When people hire me as a coach, the brand promise is you will get more done in less time and be more joyful. And I have just about 100% success rate, believe it or not, because I take complexity and simplify it. And when we get the rest and renewal we need, I'm a big believer in 10-minute power rests. It's not really a nap because you don't really sleep, but you just go into a deep relaxation and it's amazing the clarity you come out with. So meditating, we live between our ears. So taking the time every day, at least 10 minutes to clear out the cobwebs, listen to a guided meditation, super important. So rest and renewal. Once you do that, then you're entering your day and you're going through your day with that equanimity, that sense of stability, calm, and presence, you can handle anything. So when people don't have rest and renewal, they make mistakes. They say, I'm a procrastinator, and they just don't feel well. By the way, they're more likely to become ill. The second area is exercise and nutrition. Let's face it, we are what we eat. So in that category, I simply say to people, harahachi boo. Have you heard that expression? I've heard you on a podcast say that. Again, I try to take complex things and not have tons of instructions. So people have a starting place. I first heard about it through Dan Buettner, who wrote The Blue Zones and looks at the longest lived populations around the world. And in Okinawa, especially the older generations, they'll take a minute. And if you watch them, they quietly say to themselves, harahachibu, before eating. And it's a reminder to eat until I'm 80% full. The most un-American thing you can buy, right? We're all about supersize me, right? When I spent time in Italy, in fact, little sidebar, people eat pasta every day. They truly do. And actually, people are not overweight in Italy. And you think, here we're saying, don't eat my carbs, don't eat the pasta. They don't snack and they don't eat a ton. They have a small portion. So harahachibu for eating. And the second thing I would say is based on Michael Pollan's work, uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, amongst other books that he's written, which is eat food, by which he means food you can recognize, not too much, mostly plants. And for exercise, exercise every day. We are not necessarily meant to go kill it in a gym. None of the longest lived populations that Dan Buettner and others study go to the gym as their form of exercise. What we want to do is get up and down off the floor, hike, don't take your car, be with other people, bundle your activities so that you're in community, move your body and push yourself to exertion. But you don't have to do it at the gym if you're not a gym rep. So first, rest and renewal. Second, exercise and nutrition. The third area I called focus and growth. Again, most of us aren't living, toiling in the soil every day. So what do we do? We want to grow. We want to stay engaged. We want to stay sharp. Little P purpose. If you love music, play music yourself. You've never been a musician. Who cares? Play it for the joy. Play it for the frustration. When you are in flow, it actually has your adrenaline up a little bit. You need to pay attention so that you are learning and engaged in something new. Always focus your attention to shine the light on the things you care to shine the light on and then actively engage with things that make you grow. Learn a new language. I call it joy and passion. 
I don't call it purpose, but it's really that purpose part that we've been talking about. And then the fifth area that enables us to sort of expand our joy and our health span has to do with our relationship with time itself. So many of us say, I don't have time to do all of this. I don't have the wherewithal. Understanding time and how to engage, not use up time, engage with time well is a key to our longevity. So it's understanding the sweetness of a shorter life expectancy and how that U-curve helps us. It also means learning things like, when is your energy greatest? So let me ask both of you, when are you most clear and sort of on it? Is it late in the day, early in the day? So I feel the strongest early, early in the morning. Trisha knows this because I'm always shooting emails out at 5 a.m. or 5.30 and I get my exercise done early. I'm definitely in the morning, but what I find, and this is not a good thing that this happens, but what I find is when I stay up late and I get past like when I should be in bed, there is a time that I'm like, wow. And I don't know, I feel focused. I feel great, but that's really bad because I've missed my rest. and really, You know what I mean? And I try really hard not to do that anymore. Like I really get what you were saying about sleep and rest and renewal and try to have my bedtime routine. But I have to admit, there were these times when I get through the 10 o'clock hour, 1030, and I'm like, oh, you know, I see why people are staying up. But mostly I'm a morning person. <laughs> so a lot of that creativity, and when I work with people who are creatives, oftentimes they say they need to stay up because their creativity gets turned on. You may be a creative. I get that. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, and you don't expect it, but now all of a sudden I'm being efficient. I'm like seeing things, you know, researching where I shouldn't, where I don't normally right, in the daytime, right. but mostly morning. I just wanted to give a shout out to what happens sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Back to why I asked the question, which is relating it to why would I have as one of the five essential elements, and let me go through them again, it's rest and renewal, exercise and nutrition, focus and growth, joy and passion, and then our relationship with time. Why is that important? When I work with people who are running companies or just running in their lives, what we find is this. In the morning, when most people, the vast majority of people have their energy and clarity the most, what do they do? They say, I'm going to get rid of all the low-hanging fruit. I'm going to check off as many things from my list, get my errands out of the way. And then that really challenging conversation I need to have with my brother or with my work partner or what have you, I'm going to get to that later. Whatever is really hard that we don't want to do that's going to yeah. challenge us, we wait until what? Our energy, clarity, and commitment is lower. And here's what happens. People then say, oh, I procrastinate. Or they might say, yeah, it never goes well with these conversations. Well, we're not engaging with time in a way that brings out the best of us. And it's remarkable when I work with CEOs around leading their companies and they'll say, well, I can't leave work at 8 a.m. If they get there, they're early birds, say they're there from 6.30 to 8 to go work out. And I'll say, let's just try an experiment. You can always change it back. They do this. They'll have in their calendar, whatever they want to put. They don't have to report to anyone else. They put in their calendar and they find, they come back, their entire day is energized. And then they schedule the toughest thing because you're not going to have Doro, that tough conversation at 5 a.m. 
that would really yes. be a shock to the other person. <laughs> <laughs> but they do whatever it is, the contract, the conversation, the toughest thing first, and then the rest of your day flows and it's like gravy. Good advice. Yeah. Yes. So that's just one example. So I offer for free on my website. It's called the five to thrive quiz. So people go on, take the quiz and they'll get their self-assessment score, whether they're thriving, whether they're in the blah zone or whether they're languishing. And it's a great starting point to take what I call micro steps to change. Don't go for the low hanging fruit of change first. Don't do that first in the day. Do the most challenging things first. But when it comes to change in your life, low hanging fruit, bit by bit. That's really good and actionable. Like you said, it's really actionable. We can make a conscious decision to do that tomorrow. And then when you don't want to, you're like, no, 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 just do it today and see how it works. I know one of the things that you wanted to talk about was life stages versus chronological age and why life stages are more important than just focusing on our age. The first thing I would say, I'd love listeners the two of you and listeners to think of is how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? I remember my dad who's now passed. I can remember he would walk by a mirror and he'd go, oh, like shock that that's me, like him. You know, he'd be like, oh, and he'd, he'd forget that he was 86 because he felt so good. And he would, you know what I mean? In his mind's eye, he didn't look like that. <laughs> my grandmother used to say the same thing. I remember as a child, she'd say, Barbara, I look in the mirror and sometimes I think, who's that old lady? Yeah. That <laughs> That's yeah. funny. So I've asked thousands of people and people feel younger than their chronological age. So that's one data point. Another data point, I'll give a recent example. I was brought in, I do advising to lots of startups and companies. And I was brought in as an advisor to a company that is launching dinners for people in midlife because they recognize the loneliness epidemic and what's happening. As a company, they wanted to be smart. So they're going to our population statistics. And the way our population statistics are set up is the age swath is 55 to 64. So they said, we want to start these. And I was saying, great. Before I knew 55 to 64 was the age. Great idea. People want to engage with others. They want to learn. They want to grow. They want a safe place to meet and connect. And it was not a dating website, by the way. It's really communal. And then they told me 55 to 64. And I said, let me give you this example. I would love to go to a dinner like this. And I'm 60. And I'm a new grandmother. I am at a stage where in two weeks, my youngest son is getting married. So I'm at a life stage where I've both launched my kids and now I'm being pulled back in with grandchildren to be involved. <laughs> and it's beautiful. I have a friend who's 66 years old. She has two daughters in college. She started late. She's now free for the first time. They're off to college. She's been single for years. She's starting to date. And I said to them, I'm the Nana. I'm the grandma. <laughs> She's out in the dating world free as a bird, and she can't come to the dinner, and I'm included. So I really want to encourage people to think about being what I call age agnostic. 
I have friends in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 80s. I went to a friend's birthday party this past weekend. Karen turned 75 and threw herself what she called a glamp fest. We went <laughs> glamping. Have you ever been glamping? Oh, I know what it is. I think yeah. I have been. <laughs> yeah, maybe when you were in yeah, Africa. In Africa, you guys were glamping. So we did this in the Bay Area. There is every reason, fact again, and then we'll attach it to a feeling to say, you know what? What if I were age agnostic? I didn't judge myself or other people based on a number. Rather, I looked at, hey, what stage are you at? What do we have in common? So I really want to promote this idea in the workplace, in our personal lives, in our families, of connecting generations and connecting people based on who we are, not an age signifier, because it really isn't that meaningful. And how is that being received within your world in the companies that you're working with? Are they pretty receptive to people that are older and they want to keep them for their wisdom and their ability to kind of see things a different way? Here's what companies are struggling with. Whereas the population chart used to be a triangle with a lot of young people, and then it got a little smaller, and at the top are older people, it's now widened and it's a rectangle. So that we are the most age-diverse country that we've ever been before. And there's tremendous potential, but there's also challenge in that. So what they're recognizing across companies is we need older people to work longer because we don't have enough younger people. So one, let's be frank, ageism is getting pushed out because finally companies are saying, we can't afford to let people go. We need to meet their needs. So that's one. Companies are also recognizing that there's been a brain, what they're calling an HR, a brain drain. It's great to have young people, but the emotional intelligence, the learning from our failures, which only happens with time on the planet, if we lose all that, then companies will struggle because they'll go through the same mistakes over and over. So I'm helping companies recognize how to build bandwidth and connect those generations. You know, you're friends with Chip, right? Who didn't he work with Airbnb? Could you talk about that a little bit? Because that was one that I think a lot of us read about and think, oh, okay. He wrote an excellent book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. So Chip Connolly was a boutique hotel owner, chain of hotels for a number of years. He sold that. And then Air Bed and Breakfast at the time, it was started by two young techies who saw a need for renting out their apartment is how it started. Some sleeping bags. When there was a conference in San Francisco, there wasn't enough place to stay. It grew, it grew. And they thought, this is more than a tech company. We actually need someone in hospitality to help us. So they brought Chip in to be an advisor. And this was, I forget, maybe 15 years ago now. And they'd be at the leadership table, say, and he'd be hearing stories about all kinds of apps. And he didn't understand that. And he realized he felt as much of an intern as he did a mentor. He actually calls it being a mentor. And he <laughs> started this idea of the modern elder and the importance of us having modern elders in the workplace. So that's a little bit of how he did that. He then actually bought a property to live in part-time in Baja. And he played with this idea, again, middlescent experimentation. He said, what if I start some programming and have some workshops? Well, I helped him through this beta stage. 
and he called it the, still calls it the Modern Elder Academy. It has grown. There has been such a demand for this that they just expanded the property in Baja and they just bought two properties in Santa Fe. In fact, I teach twice a year, once in Baja, and it's called Consciously Curating Your Life, where people leave the kinds of things that people do there. They leave with a North Star statement, right? Again, not the pressure of saying, here's my purpose and tactical plan in five days, but the directionality of here's the roadmap that I want to follow. The tactics will come. So that's an example of the kind of thing that Chip's doing. That you're a part of too, just teaching people how this 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 can actually be, as you say, an amazing time. You know, marshal the wisdom and the wherewithal that we know we can do, and to take full advantage of this time is what you say, right? You need to change a mindset, like say, okay, society, whatever. No, this is really what it is, and not get hung up on our number, our age, but rather how we feel and how we view things. And then if we look at how we feel, rather than saying oh, I'm this age, so I should be, you know, I say, stop shooting all over yourself and say, what is possible? And what do I need to cultivate to make it true? And the fact is we have precision medicine now, so people can have longer fulfilling lives, but rather than thinking, oh, exercising and focusing on all of this is for the young, as we age, We need to spend more time, invest, I'd call it, more time in cultivating our energy. And it also does end up tying into your excellent work. Again, I want to applaud you too. Your work connecting people and communities with the importance for the planet. So energy, we are energetic beings, right? We are electrical system, which is why when someone has an accident and it cuts the electrical cord, that stimulates and sends electrical messages throughout our bodies, we can't function in the same way, right? So literally, we have to understand we are energetic beings. We need sunshine, just like plants to develop chlorophyll. We need light. People can't live in the dark and survive and be healthy. There are three kinds of energy. One is intrapersonal within ourselves. And that is the most foundational. All successful people who do more in less time and are joyful work from the inside out. Meaning, what do I need intrapersonally for myself to cultivate, to be who I want to be at this stage in my life? Then refer to the five essential elements, five to thrive quiz. Then the second kind of energy is interpersonal energy. My relationship with both of you. We are relational beings. There comes a point in our life, I don't know if you can relate to it, where we think, I'm not going to work with people who I don't relate to, share values with. Life's too short. And yet, especially as women, we tend to sometimes have relationships that, if you think of relationship as currency, withdraw from our energetic relational account and we stay in it. We need to learn to say no. We need to learn to better set boundaries. So interpersonal energy is who puts a deposit in your energy currency account, who makes withdrawals, how do you handle that? And then looking at where do I spend my social currency to create change, which you're both doing so well. That's the second kind of energy. And the third kind has to do with universal energy. It goes back to we are animals. We are energetic beings. We're not human doings. 
although we treat ourselves like that, we're human beings. And in order to be a human being, we have to know that we relate to universal energy. So what is universal energy? It's things like music and arts are this universal sense. Have you ever been in your car, you're driving along, you're hearing a song, and you just feel this, maybe your adrenaline or some mm -hmm. joyful sense? Yes. Right? Yes. That is universal energy. Have you ever walked, I know Doro, you're in Kennebunkport now, walked out, maybe it's by the ocean, and you feel something energetic about the weight. Have you ever had that experience? Am I? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, definitely. So we need to spend time in nature. There are a number of studies, facts and feelings, number of studies that speak to the fact that being in nature reduces your blood pressure and enhances your self of well-being, even if you're not so well. Universal energy is important in terms of ourselves and buoying ourselves. And it's also important so that, and I want to hear your perspectives on this, we can recognize this other middle-essent quality that we have a pull towards significance. We have a pull towards recognizing my definition of success isn't necessarily the right yardstick for me anymore. And I want to be a good ancestor. And what does that mean for me, for the planet, so that's universal energy. No, you're so right. It's almost like when you're feeling it, you know that feeling. You just know it. And it's just, you just feel like you're part of something bigger. You feel like, oh my gosh, I'm sharing this with all living beings. It's that feeling that is just incredible. But I love now, Dora, we can name it universal energy. You made a quote that I saw on, I guess it's on your website, but your most valuable currency is not your money or your time, it's your energy. It is so true that your most valuable currency is not your money, it's not your bank account, it's not super fancy friends, it's the energy you have to share for yourself and with the world. It kind of resets everything by understanding like we are energetic beings. So how are we going to support our energy so we can, as you say, serve or as, so we can get out there and do what we're here to do. And because we're in this pretty awesome period right now, it could be when we really can find that flow. It all kind of makes sense, right, Doro? <laughs> I'm very encouraged about our next rest of our lives after <laughs> too. talking to You're you, Barbara. Coach. Exactly. Yes. How do people find you? We know on your website, which is wonderful. How do you have people find you? Typically by listening to wonderful podcasts like yours, <laughs> uh, going to my website, barbarawaxman.com, probably is the best way to get information and look at the free resources. I also, for leaders, for people who are generally leading movements, companies, and the like, there's a white paper I wrote called The Future of Resilient Leadership. Many of the practices that I work with CEOs on, one of the reasons I love to do that work is the trickle-down effect. When they realize they're getting more done in less time and they're more joyful, they also realize that can work for the hundreds, if not thousands of people in their companies. So the future of resilient leadership speaks to how to accomplish some of that. Because again, my passion and my commitment is to help others just show up and be who they want to be. Because we can do that, the world will be a better place.
Thank you Barbara, so thank much, Barbara. You. Thanks for so having me. So enjoyable. Oh, thanks for, for being with us and sharing all this incredible wisdom. Yes, yeah, so good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. Precision medicine is a genetics-based approach to personalized care informed by biometrics, genomics, and lifestyle factors. Dr. Dawson, founder, CEO of Wild Health, can bring you incredible recommendations for diet, exercise, sleep, mental health, disease risk reduction, and more based on your personal health story. All of you are invited to get to know Matt Dawson better beside the ocean and over some incredible meals at Gasparilla in November. Call for the Foundations of Wellness Experience reservations at 877-764-1420 or the-gasparilla-in.com.